This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Becoming an architect is hard, but we all know that. You go to school for a long time, and work, and study, but upon graduation, you are not an architect. So when does that moment actually happen? Welcome to episode 68, Where is the Finish Line? Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to talk about the finish line of becoming an architect. What does that mean? What does it look like? And we're going to start the process. I don't know. I I think, well, I do know, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start that process with like school what that looks like and then what happens after school and what happens in your early professional life. And maybe it'd be easier for me to say when we were coming up with topics, this was something that got brought up because I have this, I mean, I don't think I'm the only one that says it, but for me, when I say becoming an architect, the finish line is not like most other jobs. It's not like most other professions. You don't go to school, get your diploma and go, yay, I'm that thing. I'm done. Yeah. doesn't work like that for architects. So. Where's the finish line? And you know, that finish line is different for some people, but we're here to advocate on, at least for me, I'm going to advocate on where my finish line is. And that's what I want to talk about. And you can dispute it or agree with it or offer alternative opinions. Because like always, Andrew and I, we don't have the show before we record the show. He doesn't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what he's going to say. Although I bet we have a decent idea because we talk about it. In the past. I don't mean before yeah, the show. We've talked we've, about this. We've had this conversation several yeah. times. Okay, so let's start the best place possible in the beginning. And for me, that is going to school. Exactly. Which, ironically, this is probably true for you as well, because you have a daughter that's going to be heading off to school. Mm-hmm. Not too much longer. She's a senior, right? I mean, this is it. Yeah, she graduates in like four and a half months. Oh. It's a bit scary. Yeah, I bet that is <laughs> tough. And I bet it's stressful because I know that as we've gotten into it, we actually started, since my wife is in the corporate office at Southwest Airlines, we have the ability to fly for free. And so for a while, before the pandemic, we were taking advantage of that and going, taking little weekend trips places. And we'd say, oh, guess what school is here? Let's go take a look at it. And we went and did that for a bunch of different schools since we can. But my daughter, Kate's now in the throes of, she takes her first official ACT test in about two Mm -hmm. weeks. Yeah. And so the stress starts to build. Of course it does. You know, I know it's really stressful for her. It's stressful for mom and dad too. I'm not going to lie. It's not fun actually. So let's talk about school. Andrew is a professor. You're probably, I won't say you're uniquely qualified because I think we all have access to this information, but there's really two big major paths that you can take. You can take the path that I took. I went to a five-year program and I got a professional degree, which is a Mm five-year degree. And with my five-year degree, that means I am eligible to take the architectural registration exam. That's one option. The other main option that people go through, which is what your program offers, and there's probably a fancy name for it. And what I did. Yeah, and what you did. It's the Mm 4-2, right? So you go and you get an undergraduate degree, and then, and I assume, I'm pretty sure about this, but I'm going to act like I don't. I assume that's an architectural degree. And then you go get a two-year master's degree. So you have a 4-2, which is what I call it. And that's what enables you to sit for the licensing exam. Yes. Yeah, that is. Because you can't take the test if with just a four-year degree. Yeah. I mean, you used to could. 
I think that they ended that in the late 90s. And actually, when I graduated, I could have interned for longer and been able to sit for the exam. Like it was like eight years instead of three or something, right? But they ended that before the turn of the century. And so now, yeah, you you pretty much have to have an accredited degree, which is either a five-year degree or a two-year degree after a 4-2 or a three-year degree. If you do something else, like you get your undergraduate degree in math, that's the other path that you did mention. And that's like a 4-3. Yeah. There's lots of ones that exist. There's some states where you don't have to have, you know, like you can just do, you still have the option to do a, a longer internship in some states, but I'm not going to get in the weeds on that stuff. So the two Pretty big rare. ones that we're talking about is five-year professional and then the 4-2 graduate and undergraduate yes. degrees. So in your opinion, do you see the value of a 4-2 versus a five-year or vice versa? Like, why would somebody want a five-year degree instead of a 4-2? Or what would be the compelling argument to get a 4-2 instead of a five? I don't really know. <laughs> the short answer is one is possibly allows you a little bit more freedom to decide maybe what you want to do. I think that you get a little bit more mm-hmm. of that in a 4-2 where you can go through and get more of a design degree. I mean, there's Depending upon where you go, it's a little more architectural oriented, but some schools it's just design. And then you can decide that you want to do architecture or not and continue the school, but you know, there's more money involved in that. But if you're certain you want to do architecture and you know it 100%, then the five-year going through and getting done is probably an easier path or maybe a quicker path and possibly a less expensive path. Well, I agree with part of that. My five-year degree, I think, had like 186 hours to it, which that's not five years. I mean, we can all do the math. And so it took me six years to get my five-year degree. But let me tell you, here's why I think that despite the fact I have a five-year professional degree, why the 4-2 might be a better option for some people. One of those reasons could be you go to a four-year school, you don't like it, or you don't think they have good professors, or whatever the case may be or you want to specialize in something, it allows you the opportunity to get your four-year degree, get out and apply to a different school, or maybe maybe you didn't have your act together coming out of high school and you couldn't get into the type of architecture program that you wanted to. Then you figured it out in college, killed it, have a great portfolio, great grades, and you can get in a better two-year master's program. That's one reason. The other reason I think that a 4-2 could be better and I actually got an email for this. Somebody was saying, hey, you want to be a professor? Do you want to like, submit your qualifications to teach? And the language in the document that described the job basically says that they want me to have a master's degree. Mm-hmm. But I don't have one, right? Because I have a five-year yeah. degree. But the 4-2 qualifies as a master, even though they don't have as much or they have a similar amount of architectural education that I have. But it's still that kind of Oh, masters versus non-masters. But since I don't want to, I never had designs on teaching, at least certainly not coming out of school. That's the other reason I see people wanting master's degrees is because they want to teach. They want to have at least that option in their, in their back pocket. They want to teach. It seems like most of the times they expect you to have a master's degree without having that extra layer of, well, let's actually think about what we're asking for here. This should qualify, even though it's not a master's compared to what I think is a low standard to just use the word, you need to have a master's degree. So that would be the reason why you'd choose one over the other. I guess I can agree with that. I mean, I think that from my experience in that, 
the category of teaching and then wanting a master's degree, you can get around that because you have a certain level of experience. Because, I mean, there's a lot of people that teach that have been teaching for 30 years that didn't have master's degrees because it wasn't a requirement back whenever to be a registered architect. The other real benefit, though, I think of the 4-2 is the ability to not only go to a different school, like you said, but also to work in between. I know a lot of people that they gain some focus by going out after they get their four-year degree and working for a couple of years. They can figure out what part of the architecture profession they want to focus on. So when they go back and get that master's degree and get that professional degree, that they have a little more focus and they can maybe spend some time studying or go to a program that focuses on whatever area that interests them now. I think that's another that's another benefit to the 4-2. Yeah, I see that. Okay, so let's move on to, so you went to college. You've got a degree now. You either have a five-year or 4-2, whatever it's going to be, 4-3. You got it. Are you an architect? No, you're not. Because we have a process, an internship process is part of our career path. It's not too dissimilar from what medical professions take. You have to, as a practical process of becoming an architect, you have to spend a certain amount of time getting practical experience. So the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, they have the AXP, which stands for Architectural Experience Program. I know that they've identified 96 key tasks across six different practice areas, and you have to demonstrate your ability to perform those tasks. Those 96 tasks are divided out over 3,740 hours. So you have to complete all these tasks and spend all that time before you're eligible to take the next step. Yes, lots of hours. 3,740 hours worth. And they just cut it in. That's of today. You and I had to do probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000, I think is what it was when we did the program. No, I looked. So I had to, before they were CEUs is what they, well, not, they had a different name for it, but it was basically you had blocks and we had 470 blocks and each block was eight hours. And so 470 times eight is 3,760, which is 20 hours more than what's required now. I don't recall so, it that way. And I'm right. right. I'll have to go back and look Looked at my hours. I can look at what, how many hours I, on my in-car record, but I swear it was more than that. Well, I can't do that. I mean, I could, but it wouldn't matter because I didn't take the actual exam until I was 28 years old mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that, 30 years old. And so I had like six years experience or something. So I obliterated the number of hours I needed in all these categories. Yeah. I had like twice as much time as I needed. Yeah. So but you only had that report. wasn't helpful for me, but 470 hours were the same. So here's what I find is interesting is currently, let me see here. There's one, two, three, four, five. So six categories, right? I guess I knew that already. There were six practice areas, what they call them. There's practice management, project management, programming and analysis project planning and design, project development and documentation, and construction evaluation. Those are the six areas. Under the ARE 5.0, which is what the current one is, there's five exams. So part of me goes, why wouldn't they align those two? Like if there's six practice areas, why wouldn't they create six exams? Or if there's five exams, why wouldn't they consolidate that into five practice areas? Right? I don't understand that. Do you? I don't think those have ever been coordinated though. I mean, because even when we did it, there was like, I mean, I took nine exams. Mm-hmm. There was only whatever, eight categories. So, I mean, it's never, 
it's never seemed to line up the areas of experience and the actual portions of the test. And I don't even know that there's really a relationship between them, to be honest, if you look at them, because the test names are not anything related to the to the category names either. <laughs> well, the thing that I think is a little bonkers. So I would like, if we were more organized or something, maybe I would have bothered to have somebody from NCARB on the show, but I actually don't want to have this be an NCARB show. Not this one. You know, maybe that makes sense one day, but I still think that it, if I was running things, I think that's something I'd address. <laughs> I'd address that the experience that I asked people to get aligned with the test that I was telling them to take. Yeah. That's just how I would do it. Call me crazy. Here's something else. You got to get all this experience. And we know that that amount of time, which was 3,740 hours, if you divide that into eight hour blocks, that's 467 days. And that's like if there's no overlap, like every hour you spent, isn't a duplication or doesn't exceed your requirements. So the general rule of thumb that I always had was it takes about three years for you to collect all the experience you need working a regular workload, having a, a workplace that actually can say like, Hey, I need more construction evaluation time. Can I get it? And they say, sure, we'll accommodate you. We'll get you what you need. I know that for some people, just getting all the hours in the six different silos can be difficult sometimes. Yeah, that is one of the things, right? Where there's certain tasks that people don't get to for a long time because that's just not a position that they're in in the firm that they work for. That, Like you said, they don't get to go to the job site or they don't get to go to client meetings or any of those kind of things. And it takes longer if someone's really not paying attention and taking care of that young person's AXP experience. You know, most big firms, hopefully they have someone's doing it, taking care of that to make sure that it happens. But those things can slide through the cracks for sure. And you're missing only two hours, but it takes you two years to get those two hours. Boy, I would be mad <laughs> if, <laughs> if I've gone a year and I just need two hours and I can't get them. There's no way that I, you know, even if it was, I needed a hundred hours, yeah. I would say, you know what? I should be able to get that in a couple months, yeah. regardless of what it is. But you have to have your supervisor sign off on it. Well, that's fine. <laughs> You can tell your supervisor what you're doing. <laughs> it's not like I'm actually in the field with them when they're doing it, yeah. right? I just think that's bonkers. It's hard to get all those hours, you know, and especially cross those. But three years was kind of the, okay, so you got three years. So keep in mind now, your ship is sailing along just like it's supposed to. You don't have any crazy headwinds. You haven't run in any tropical storms. It's smooth sailing. So you're at least five years of school and three years of practical experience. So surely, Andrew, you're an architect now, right? Mm. You've been at this for at least eight years. I'm an architect. No. For sure. No. Right? <laughs> Wrong. There is a, another <laughs> gate coming up ahead. There's something else you still need to do. And this might actually be the biggest roadblock of all of them. It's the actual architectural registration exam. Mm -hmm. So as I was working on the rung sheet, I have a young woman who sits in front of me and she's going through all this process right now. I'm her supervisor. I know what her hours are. I sign off on them, all that kind of stuff. So I was pinging her with questions. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And so I was talking to her about the exam and it was really hard for me not to say, oh, back when I took the test, it was a lot harder and blah, blah, blah. Cause you know what? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Old man. Yeah. Right. It's different now. It's still hard. Whatever. Mm -hmm. But I'm still going to say, you know, I took non-exam. 
Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it took forever. And here's the thing I really love to say. Look, I'll be honest. I do say it with a bit of pride. So nine tests, you know, we've talked about this before. Nine tests is mm-hmm. when we took it. Mm-hmm. And it was about, if you went back to back on all these tests, it was about 36 hours of tests. At least. You know, it was bad, right? Well, I'll tell you right now. So now they've reduced it down to five tests, which we mentioned. And if you took those five tests back to back to back, it's still 25 and a half hours or thereabouts. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. That's a lot of time to sit taking tests for sure, regardless of who you that are. That is a lot of tests. So here's this. So one of the things I thought, well, let's look up, let's put some numbers to this. And then I got something in my back pocket that puts some scale to it. So the past fail rates for ARE 5.0 currently range from a low of 42% for one of the tests, which was project planning and design, mm-hmm. to a high of 70%, which was construction evaluation. But for the test as a whole, it's right around 54% success rate, pass, 54%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To put that in context, the pass rate, the national pass rate, as of February of 2020, it's the latest information I could find, February 2020, to become a lawyer, right, to sit for the bar exam, 80%. Yeah. So that tells me either they're a lot smarter or our test is a lot harder. It's one of the two, right? Yeah, for sure. I know what I'd like it to be, but <laughs> Me that's too. crazy. 54% versus 80%? 80, yeah. What's happening here? And I don't even know what their hours are either. I don't know how long the bar is. That's like one or two tests. I don't know that it's the same. I don't have any data on that. I guess I could look it up to see how many test hours is the bar. The other thing I was going to say is I was looking at, you know, we were talking about stats. I got some stats from the recent NCARB annual report, and essentially... The time that it takes for someone right now to, like when they take their first exam to the time they finish and take their last exam, they have it as, at 2.2 years. So they're spreading it out over two years or two plus years, yeah. which to me is kind of crazy because yeah. I didn't do that. I went through it as fast as I could possibly go through it, but that's the average. Yeah. So that's a long time. And I think there's some reasons for why that happens. But since I looked it up while you were talking. Mm-hmm. The Texas bar exam is a two and a half day long exam, but it's 12 hours. Total test time. Total test time is 12 hours. So one of the things that the ARE does is it allows you to take each of the five tests whenever you want, right? You don't have to sit and take them all at once because mm-hmm. you couldn't, right? It's 25 hours. So from personal experience, it took me about two years to take all my tests, which for the record, I want to go, I passed them all the first time, mm. right? Which I'm proud of that. But it took me two years to take them all. And part of it's because I took about a month per test. I'd study for about a month. I'd take the test. Then study for about a month, take a test. And I did this for a while, but then things got crazy at work. And I went about six, eight months of, I, can't, I don't have the time to study. Not doing anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't take anything. Then I got back to it and I did that for another three exams or so. And then I had another six month chunk of time when. I couldn't study. I mean, I was putting in like 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. And I was like, I don't have the bandwidth to Mm -hmm. do my job and study. So that put another gap in there. And then that got done. And then I took the last like three tests. So I did like a block of three, six months, block of three, six months, block three. And that's why it took me so long to take the tests that I took. I mean, I pretty much averaged about a month of prep for every one of the sections. 
And I'll tell you, because I'll tell anybody who asks, that I studied more for those tests than anybody I've ever met. Some people I know, like I have a friend of mine, without any studying, he went took them, and he passed like five of them without like wild guesses and just being a smart person. That's what he yeah. did. But not everyone can afford the money to say, hey, I'm just going to willy-nilly pay 200 something dollars just to see if I pass it or not on the chance that I might pass it and I don't have to study for it anymore. That's a very great Poupon way of taking the tests, I think. That's not very normal, <laughs> you know? I, suppose. I think most people study. I took quite a few without studying much, but that's because I took them in groups. I was trying to look at what I had here, but the dates aren't on my in-carb record anymore. But I took all the exams in less than a year, maybe 15 months, and I failed three of them. I had to wait six months to finish. So mine was pretty quick uh, to get through those exams. And the thing that always embarrasses me is I failed all the drawing exams. <laughs> because, it, you know, you aren't supposed to design, right? You spend your time trying to design things, and that's not what the test is about. So you just don't get finished or you do something wrong. I didn't study for those. And then when I studied for them, they were fine. But I took yeah. the drawing exams without really studying. <laughs> Man. Do you remember what your design problem was? I had to design a restaurant, a corporate office, and a brew pub. That was like it was one business. I had an office for the one where you kind of had to do the site stuff. And then there was one that was an interior, which was an office. And then I don't remember what the, like, the full building thing was. Do yeah. not remember. Mine was one mega building. So they made the beer, they sold the beer, and then they ran the business of making and selling the beer. It was just like a one big- Making and selling the beer. Nice. Yeah. And you know, I think it was kind of a compound design. So they gave you a site and, you know, and you're like, oh, I got to make sure I have sidewalk to the public right away. I mean, there's like all these things that you know that they're looking for. It was not any great design, but it worked. There were mm -hmm. no dead end corridors. I had the right number of stairs. You know, I connected my sidewalks to the bus stop. <laughs> And the door's got to face east or whatever, you know, all those sorts of things. And if you don't, yeah, but it could be an unbelievably dull rectangle and they don't care. Yeah. They're just like, hey, don't make a death trap. Like there are some rules here. Yeah. Everything beyond this exactly. is gravy, right? <laughs> this is the standard yeah. to which we're measuring you with. So it, it took me just over two years to take mine. I didn't fail any, even though now you only have to wait two months if you fail, I think. And it was six months mm -hmm. when we did yeah, it. It's much faster. And I remember the last two tests that I took was general structures, which doesn't exist anymore, and long span, which also doesn't exist anymore. When I started, I thought, oh, I'm going to do bad at structures, so I'm just going to put that off. I don't want to do that now. I want to start off with, with a pass, <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't want to like fail yeah. my first test because it'll like blow my confidence. So I put it to the end, and then I got to the end, and I thought, why did I put these at the end? Because now if I don't pass these, I got to sit around and do nothing for six months. I can't even like do another test during that time. But that was not a problem. Yeah. I kind of put those in the middle. Yeah. So I didn't have to wait a full six months between my last test. I think it was about four months between my, like the last exam that I passed and then the time I had to wait to take the ones that I had failed. I think it was about four months, but that's because I took, like I said, I took all of the exams in a really compressed time period. The one thing we were talking about school, I've got some other numbers here and it kind of relates to that idea of what school that you go to, but according to NCARB, that there's really not much difference in either the pass rates or the success rates or the 
time that it takes you to finish the ARE on the different kinds of schools. So it doesn't really, the education process doesn't really seem to impact that ARE process. And my guess is because you've had to work, that's really what impacts your ARE hmm. ability is the work that happens after you get done with school, whatever that is. You know, I'm glad we didn't put any money on that because I find that shocking to hear because for this reason only, and this is, I'm making some general assumptions here, but if I pick two schools and one's really hard to get into, high criteria, demanding test scores necessary, all that kind of good stuff. And here's another school that's like, send us your weak, your sick, your, you know, whatever. We'll take anybody. It suggests that in a very kind of, let me just neuter the conversation. That one person's really smart and really capable and competent, focused, and like they do what they got to do. That's who they are. And the other person is maybe not so much. It would suggest to me that iron sharpens iron. The person who's been forged by studying and preparation and high intelligence capabilities, that stuff, would do better on these tests than the person that was less of all those things. That's what, I mean, I would have put serious money on okay. that being the case. And they do, but like, it's like 5%. They're not huge. They're not huge gaps from the data that I'm looking at. It's like between 48 to 55%, right? So it's not that big of a deal. But the other thing I think that's interesting about the point that you're making is that looking at numbers, new enrollment every year into architecture schools, up until the past three or four years, it was between seven and 8,000. 2014, it dropped a bit, but there's about 7,500 new students coming in like into architecture school. The flip side of that is that there's only about 5,800 that are graduating with degrees. So there's a, a percentage of those people that drop out just in school, 2,000 or so students every year. To put that all in perspective, like in 2020, there was 25,000 students in the U.S. that were in architecture school. I have no idea how that relates to engineering or law school, but there's roughly about 25,000, give or take, for the past 10 years, students in architecture school across the U.S. That's interesting. I did look up, and what's funny is I, the way that I guess I'm doing it, it's not, it's not being very supportive of my search techniques, apparently. <laughs> of your Google searching? Of my Google searching. You know, NCAR publishes all like, hey, here's the pass rates of ARE 5.0 by school. It tells you what all these numbers mm -hmm. are. Like if I look at 5.0 pass rates by school, like I'll just say, okay, let's do this. Rice University is generally listed. It's one of the top ranking schools in the nation by all measurable standards. Rice does really well. And let's look at a school like Texas A&M, where you teach. This is what I find is interesting. Okay, pick on No, you guys look. You guys look great. Oh. I was going to say, let's do tech. Let's pick on tech because neither of us went to school there. But you know, the truth is tech, did, yeah. I don't want to do that. So if I look at all the passing rates, so like Rice has a, and I won't read off the scores because nobody cares. It's an 80 to 75. It's a 72 to 45. It's a 69 to 72. It's a 55 to 52. It's a 82 to 57, a 50 to 44. So some areas, it's not that big a deal. Sometimes it's a little bit bigger deal, but it, it yeah. would suggest to your point that the school you go to is not a, a predictor of how successful you will or will not be when it comes to taking the architectural registration exam. 
you might get a little bit of a leg up, but that really speaks more to the individual and not the person that is molded by the university to, to a large Yeah, that's extent. what I would say, right? Just as a side note, I looked it up. In 2019, there were 132,000 students in law school. That's bonkers. To our 25,000. And when you talk about the attrition rate of the number of students that graduate from architecture school that actually make it to what we're leading up to, which is the finish line, which is actually being a licensed yeah, architect. Yeah, the finish line. It's even less. Yeah, it's way less. So I think that that's rather shocking in a totally predictable way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's look at it now. You've gone to school for a long time. You got a bunch of experience at your job, you know, hands-on, boots-on-the-ground experience. You've taken five difficult, low-pass-rate success tests Tests. over a long period of time. Clearly, you're an architect now, right? You're an architect, Mm -hmm. for sure, right? Yes. The answer is yes. (laughs) You are now an architect, (laughs) right? I think so, yeah. So technically, in my mind, like where's the finish line? The finish line has to be after you've gone to school, after you've gotten your experience, after you've taken all the tests and passed them all, you are legally... An architect. I go, that is our finish line. Our finish line's not anything before that point. It is getting licensed. But I know there's going to be some people listening to this to say, why do I need to be licensed? What's the value in being licensed other than now I'm more liable to get sued? Yeah. Right. That me having that stamp that says I'm licensed to do this. Why would I do that? So I want to take the remaining time we have on today's episode, this is the beer talk. This is the beer part, okay. not the beer talking. But <laughs> this is the conversation you need to have at a bar, right? What's the value of being licensed? What does that get you? You want to go first? You want me to go first? You start it. I'll chime in. Well, other than the fact that you actually have now passed the finish line and you can say you're an architect, which I think that's a big one. Like that's a really, really big one in my mind. Agreed. That speaks to character yeah. in my mind. You said, I'm going to do this, and doing this means this, like all of this. That's it. This is what that means. So for me, that's hands down, far and away. Now, there's all kinds of benefits that come from the fact that you're licensed, in my opinion. Like, I can charge more for a licensed professional than I can an unlicensed professional. So you're going to get paid more than an unlicensed professional. Now, you might be the next Tadao Ando, and you don't need to be licensed. Yeah. But, you know, that person can say, I'm making plenty of bank and I'm not licensed because I just pop out all these projects for these builders and they pay me to do it and blah, 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 blah. I'm killing it. Ranking in bank. Yeah. Sure. That's true. There are people out there that are doing financially, they're doing fine. I got no problem with that. But for the most people, that's not true. But I will say there are people out there that make plenty of money. Money is relative, right? It's just whatever you want. So they're happy. Do they need to get licensed? No, they don't. Clearly, that's not a goal for them, even though I still secretly kind of think it is. I usually think there's a reason why somebody hasn't gotten licensed that went through all those other steps, but just decided not to take the test. I don't get that, first off. Yeah, that's the part. That's the part. And I know I sound judgy. No, no, but that's the part I don't get. And I'll be honest, I got a couple of friends I graduated with, people that I went to architecture school with that are still in the profession. I mean, there's several that I graduated with that aren't, but... And they're not licensed because the place that they work, they never really sign any drawings or anything. And so that, you know, they don't see the benefit to it. Well, but they might be saying, I just want to be a better architect, even though I'm not legally an architect. So to say that you're not getting benefit from the time in school, even if you don't take the test, 
I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, even though I don't think that's your point. No. Why go through all that stuff? Go through all that stuff and never, again, finish it. Because to me, you're not finished. But let me throw this out. There are people that I know, and they're struggling with taking the ARE. They're not, like, literally, they would probably stab me if I said, hey, I passed them all the first time. <laughs> stab, right? Because it's, you know, it makes them feel bad. I don't want to make people feel bad, but I know that it's hard. They try, and they, they're struggling, and maybe it's just not clicking mm-hmm. for them, right? So I know there are people out there that are actively taking tests. And of course, that momentum, that enthusiasm, that drive, it's going to ebb if you just constantly hit a wall. I know one of the partners of a job I had a couple ago, and she's a great designer, right? She's a great designer. She's got an undergraduate degree in interior design. She's got a graduate degree in architecture. She like was the face of all the projects that we design. And she failed the design portion of the test like five times. And this was back when the test was only offered like once a year. Once a year? Yeah, so she would fail it, have to wait a year, and then go do it again, and then go do it again. But I'm telling you, she was a great designer. She was a good architect. She was good at all the things she needed to do, but she kept doing it, and eventually she got licensed because it was important to her. Yeah. So that speaks to her character, but I'm not so sure if she had never gotten licensed, would not have been a reflection on her abilities to do what she was tasked with doing in this office. But in comparison, now at Boca Powell, where I'm at now, we have 100 people in the office. First off, I couldn't tell you who was licensed or not licensed for the most part. I go, are all our CAs licensed? I don't know. Probably. I shouldn't say. I shouldn't guess. <laughs> but so at my last office, we put a lot of pressure on people to get licensed. And a lot of it had to do with both Michael and I. We both felt it was important for you to get licensed. But it also meant we could charge more for your time and you needed less handholding and we could heat seeking missile you onto more work mm-hmm. by yourself as you start to demonstrate your ability to do certain things. Yeah, totally. You had more value to us. Totally. Right? You had more value. And some people maybe can toil away at their desks at larger firms and they can just kill it what they do. And you're right, they never have to stamp a drawing. They never have to sign anything. So are they still as qualified and capable of doing their job if they don't? Of course they are. Of course they are. But they don't get licensed. And I will tell you right now, there's a ceiling for you if you're not licensed. I agree for sure with that. Again, that doesn't discount anything that you do or your abilities anyway, but I do think that there is a ceiling. I do find, at least in my experience as well, is that there's less pressure to become licensed in larger firms. You got to be really self-motivated if you're working in a really large firm in order to pursue licensure, right? They don't think they put that kind of pressure on you that, mm. you know, smaller firms, 50 people and under, you and I are talking about much smaller, but even in those, what I would call medium-sized firms, that there's pressure. But once you get to like 200 or maybe even 100, I don't know what it's like at your place now, but I don't think that the, the company, the firm, puts that kind of pressure on you to get licensed because they're going to come by those people one way or another. It's not like they're counting on you to fill that role. Yeah. Look, I need to say this because people at my current office actually listen to the podcast. The ceiling is still really high. So firms like mine, we still value and respect those people. In fact, we just got through a process of trying to come up with all the names and titles so we can reflect people's achievements and efforts and give them a path for raises and bonuses and advancing through the company. And a lot of effort and trouble went to creating a pathway for people who do not seek licensure. While we celebrate the individuals that do become licensed, we don't really penalize the people that don't. 
but they definitely go on a different track. And so if you wanted to have your name on the door, if you want to have an ownership stake, while no one has explicitly said this to me, evidence would suggest you need to be licensed. If you want to be a partner at a firm that's you know about the size of mine, and I'm not talking about like you're the marketing principal or something like that. I mean, if you're in an architectural capacity, I think being licensed, that's your gate to the C-suite. I think you kind of need to, need to kind of have that. So there's no question. I guarantee you that somebody's probably a lot of people, because we have millions of listeners, are going to hear this. And they're going to say, that's a bunch of BS. Oh, I know. Everything you're saying, total garbage. I'm not licensed and my life is great. I do everything that I wanted to do. All right. I haven't had any roadblocks. There are no glass ceilings for me. And I go, you know what? That's going to be true. And I'm not trying to say to those folks, yeah, but you're not happy. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> but I will, I will confess that I look at folks that have put in all the time and all the trouble and all the effort to go down this path and then don't go the rest of the way. I look at that and I go, something's broken or something's not right or something happened because why wouldn't you do this? In my mind, it's like saying, like you're five foot five and weigh 350 pounds, but you're a personal trainer. I go, something's not right there. Like there's a piece missing. And that's not to say that that guy doesn't have all the knowledge in the world to be the world's greatest physical trainer. He's like, you're the one lifting the weights, not me. I don't need to lift the weights. So why do I got to be in shape? You know, <laughs> there's a disconnect there. You go, there's a chapter here we're not seeing. Yeah. So anyway, so that was a good chat. We just made a lot of people mad today. I know. Of course. That's fine. That's fine. Send your emails to andrewhawkins at internet.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's time for the last part of the show, which is the next Would You Rather question. And since I wrote it and I only uploaded it like two minutes before we started <laughs> recording, Andrew has not had any time to think about this. <laughs> so this will be fun. And while I think once I actually read it, you're going to go, well, that's easy. There's an obvious answer. I'm pretty sure that we'll find a way to complicate it. You think there's an obvious answer? Somebody might. Okay. But let's get to it. Let's just get to it. Here's the question. Would you rather be transported permanently 500 years into the future or 500 years into the past? Boom. What's it going to be? Man, that's actually tougher than I would expect. I'm sure you've got like a right off the top of your head perfect answer, but... <laughs> Duh. And it may be because of the, the way that I view 500 years into the future. <laughs> I might say 500 years in the past because I know what I was getting into. If I went 500 years in the future, I might not know what's happening. You could be the only person alive in 500 years. This is what I'm saying. If you could shoot me there, I might be the only human. Like the whole planet might be overtaken by aliens or something like that. So yeah. I don't have any clue. But at least if I was going backwards, I would know what I was getting into. Although I guess my life expectancy would be like a lot shorter and my life might be a lot, a lot harder. Not necessarily. I know. I might live the same, but it would be harder. We've talked about that. Since you're not doing childbirth and you're not five years old anymore, your life expectancy is pretty much not that much different than it is right now, 500 years ago. So what's it going to be? 1521 or 2521? 1521. You're going 1521. Ooh. 1521. You're dying by getting hit with a rock tied to a stick. 
<laughs> you just told me that my life expectancy was the same. Yeah, unless you die by getting hit with a rock. Getting hit by a rock, yeah. Well, that would mean I would have to provoke someone to do that, so. 1521 was the end of the Renaissance. It was not a bad time to be mm -hmm. there. The only thing I know about 1521, without doing any research, so I'm pretty sure this was the year that Martin Luther was excommunicated by the Catholic Church. I know that was going on. This is right in that wheelhouse, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. And so, just for point-counterpoint, I'm going to go to the future. And I'm really nervous about it because I want, I don't, I want to say, and it maybe it's because of what I, I want to be. I want to be a positive person. And because I want to be a positive person, the positive person chooses the future. Like things, are, we're going to figure it out. Things are going to get better. Because it's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's going to yeah. be so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be wearing suits where all our bodily fluids are reprocessed and absorbed back into our bodies. We're going to have jet packs. The future is going to be amazing. And you know, the truth is, is I don't really believe that, but I'm forcing myself to say, it's going to get better. We're going to figure stuff out and the world is not going to devolve into mediocrity and wars and puddles of goo and cockroaches and just me. I think civilization's going to be better. Yes. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. I would agree. There's a part of me that really wants that, that really wants to say, man, the future is space travel and teleportation and I can snap my fingers and have all the food I want and those kinds of things and everybody's happy and there's all kinds of peace, but it makes me really nervous. I mean, that's what I would love to have, but it makes me really nervous. The only thing I would say maybe that works for that is that it's 500 years. Like maybe if it was only 200 years or something, it would be different, but maybe that 500 years is enough time to kind of work it out. Because if we think about the difference between now and 500 years ago, right, where I'm getting beat with a stick with a rock tied to it, <laughs> maybe hopefully that the evolution of everything, it's better. It's better. That would be great. I yeah. just maybe the, the pessimist in me thinks that it's not. But you don't believe it. So this really is kind of a optimist versus the pessimist. The pessimist goes, I don't have a high degree of confidence that Things are getting better, and 500 years is actually not far enough for us to either implode and civilization rises from ashes like the phoenix into something glorious, right? If I said a thousand years, maybe it would be amazing again. Maybe the civilization, our starvation, we've either figured something out by that point, or the world is kind of rebooted. I think that would end up happening if we go far enough out. The thing that actually really gives me pause is. In 500 years, what I'm capable of doing, my ability to contribute is probably nothing. Yeah. It's nil yeah. at that point. Yeah. Right. I don't want to be that guy and say, they're like, you've seen those commercials like, okay, who's next? We're going to print a PDF. And people are like, ooh, I'm not going to know any of the technology. <laughs> you know, in this new utopia, I'm not going to know how to do yeah. anything. I can't say, well, I'll be an architect. And they're like, how do you design a sky office? You know, you know what? I won't know how to do any of those things. So yeah. I, what am I like? I don't know what job I'd have. 1500, 1500 AD. I am the man. I'm dominating. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to invent so many things they've never even thought of. I know. Right. Like, and I'm like, yep, you can do that. Yeah. I'm like, I got an yeah. idea. Right. Satellites. Let me work you through it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just thinking automobile. I'm going to show you how to make an automobile. It's yeah. going to be awesome. You're like, let's check out the combustion engine. 
you know, exactly. not that I could actually do that. I don't know how to do a combustion engine. But I'm feeling like, you know, my skill set now would actually translate into a position of some stature in 1521. In 2521, man, I am worthless, I think. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing that, so I, I have less concerns, even though there's still concerns, that if I go into the future, that the world's actually still there, and I'm not just going to be knee-deep in goo with cockroaches running around, and me, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. That would be terrible. Or like, the ozone's been depleted, and I'm going to go, poof, here I am, and then three minutes later, I have such radiation poisoning that I'm going <laughs> to die three minutes after I arrive. <laughs> I'm going to assume that that's not going to be the problem. Mm -hmm. But I am going to be irrelevant as a contributing member to society <laughs> in 500 years. It's going to be you and all the three-year-old kids hanging out because that's the same sort of level you're going to have at that point, right? Yes. Like, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. That would be an issue for sure. Can I change my answer? No, no. <laughs> I'm going to change my answer. I hadn't even thought about that from that <laughs> perspective, though, of like really, yeah, being useless. I mean, you would like to think that you could learn stuff, but I would imagine a 500-year learning curve would be pretty ridiculous. You know, because it's even possible that there's a new language. Yeah. Maybe there's not all these different countries anymore. Now we've turned into one big global economy and we speak some version of Chinese, English, Spanish or something. That's like this new, I don't know what they're saying. Oh, that would be, I might yeah. not be able to communicate to people when I arrive. Oh. If it's the utopia, they've got a translator like built into their brain because they've been microchipped or whatever. And it's like, they can understand you because they understand like, you know, 700 languages. You know what could happen? Maybe there's some kind of crystal display and it scans me and it'll tell me like what relatives are currently <laughs> existing. And then I just go hang out with them. I just go freeload yeah. off of them. <laughs> I'm your great, 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 great grandfather. Oh yeah. 500 years, man. That would be a lot. Could be. That's a lot of generations. How, it's, how would it be if it did that? It scanned you and there was no one. <laughs> your lineage had died. Oh, that would be so sad. Right? You would just be like, you'd be a rejected three-year-old because you'd have no skills. Wow. You just made it super depressing. <laughs> <laughs> My line has died out in 500 years. You have a jetpack, so you're good. How am I going to buy it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Is there like a soup kitchen, but you just stand in line and they give you jetpacks? Yeah. I don't think that's how that's going to work. If you had a pocket full of money, maybe you would, like, that currency would be worth like a whole bunch in the future instead of not much right like your 20 dollar bill you could go buy a car or something because of the way that it works i have to sell my antique andrew jackson <laughs> bill that's ridiculous i'm thinking i answered wrong i think i screwed this one up i think i i think i chose wrong but you're really changing your mind now no i'm not going to because i'm gonna i'm gonna stand by my poor decision <laughs> and i'm gonna say andrew won this one you won it i'm just gonna concede Mark it down, everybody. Andrew wins. Yeah, that's a first. But you never know, though. They might treat people like you so much better in the future. Maybe. Maybe they're like... Like, I mean, because you have no skill, maybe there's some, like, you live the good life. I have, I have skill. I just don't have skills they need. Come on. Let's, like... Well, <laughs> there's a difference. <laughs> you don't have current, current skills. How about that? I could be a docent in a history museum. In a museum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let me tell you about 1995. 500 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm an expert. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So I think the conversation, even though we might have made some people mad or hurt some feelings, which neither was our goal, so I apologize for that. Again, send all angry correspondence to andrew.hawkins at internet.com. I will respond to every email I get at that address. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, smart. So we're going to wrap it up. So that's going to be the end of episode 68, Where is the Finish Line? We would like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked this episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get juicy, fresh new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star, there's light at the end of the tunnel rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this wonderful episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.